Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 384 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guests today are Patricia Marcoccia and Maziar Gattery, the director and producer of the new documentary film The Rise of Jordan Peterson. Peterson is a Canadian psychology professor whose YouTube lectures and self-help book 12 Rules for Life have attracted a wide audience. However, Peterson is also an extremely polarizing figure who first rose to prominence for his opposition to Bill C-16. Peterson argued that certain provisions of the bill, which require Canadians to refer to transgender and non-binary people by their preferred pronouns, represented a dangerous expansion of the government's power to regulate free speech. Peterson has since weighed in on a wide range of controversial topics, and his frequent attacks on political correctness have made him a hero of many on the right, which has only increased suspicion of him on the left. The documentary The Rise of Jordan Peterson charts his rise to fame, explores his home life, and gives voice to some of his many critics. And now here's our interview with Patricia Marcoccia and Maziar Gattery. All right, so we're here with Patricia Marcoccia and Maziar Gattery. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, so Maziar, you told me in an email that you're both huge science fiction fans. So let's start off with you and have you just tell us about how you first got interested in science fiction. Sure. Um, it all started with uh, Next Generation, actually. Uh, my older brother always watched it and... Uh, so I didn't have a choice when I was a kid, uh, but as time went on, I got a bit older. I started getting more and more into it, and I always just loved the idea of uh, exploration and and but also the kind of science fiction that kind of stood out to me was always the kinds that had those characters that were timeless that kind of speaks to uh, humanity. Especially, my two favorite characters were always Data and Seven of Nine. And um, what I think those characters did very well were kind of offering a mirror back to us, you know, the humans. And uh, they were, because they were trying their best to become human and in that quest kind of told us more about ourselves than some other characters have ever have. So those are some of the main characters that always stood out for me in my, uh, my Trekkie days. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting you start off mentioning Star Trek because, Patricia, you told me over email that, that Star Trek is your main fandom that you're in. <laughs> yes. Or... Yes, it's true. Maybe that's why we got married. <laughs> Star Trek was uh, our foray into science fiction. Um, for myself, I guess it started from my dad. My dad loves astronomy, and that's why he loves Star Trek. And so as a kid, I always saw it on TV. But when I was a kid, I used to make fun of him for watching it, and I used to comment on the characters with the crunkled up foreheads. That's what I used to call it, the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I love the show, especially, I guess, Next Generation and Voyager. Um, I love the way they have these deep themes incorporated into the stories and the characters. And um, just it's just a great show. It's something that Maz and I still watch today. Mm-hmm. Did it, did you talk about that on your first date or anything? How you're both starting? <laughs> or like, how did that come up? <laughs> um, no, I don't think we did. I think it's something that came up later. Do you remember, Matt? I think I think I kind of, uh, you know, watching Netflix uh, after after the courting was done, and then you, <laughs> <laughs> and then you sort of uh, you know loosen the belt. Uh, yeah, we would Netflix, and uh, I'd always just quickly turn on. Uh, I think at that time was Next Generation. I was like starting from the beginning and going all the way. Uh, and the seasons and um 
Yeah, at first I think Patricia was always a little bit hesitant. Like, why are we watching this? No, <laughs> no. The o- the only time that would happen is if you would put on Deep Space Nine. I never really got into that. No, series. Deep Space Nine is a Sorry. great show. I have to get her into that. It's a good show. <laughs> People don't like the aesthetic; it turns them off. But it's a solid, solid show with great characters. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of how it started. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're here. Are you looking forward to the new Picard show, or have you been following that at all? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. He's, I mean, one of the best characters, of course. So can't wait. Yeah. Are there any other um, science fiction or fantasy things that have had a big impact on you throughout your lives? I would say some of my favorite sci-fi has been, um, off the top of my head, I, I would say Moon, uh, Sunshine, Children of Men was pretty... I had never seen anything like Children of Men. Um, uh, yeah, those those are some of the ones that that drew drew in on those themes that that really stuck a chord. Um, yeah, those are the ones that stand out for me. So the sort of more dystopian horror kind of science fiction. Yeah, kind of like a warning, um, like this little uh, canary bird warning us of our darker parts through film. Uh, it was really thought-provoking, all those films. I still quite remember them well to this day. Mm. Patricia, is there anything besides Star Trek that, you, uh, that you're that you particularly a big fan of? Hmm. Um, nothing major that really stands out. We saw an interesting documentary recently about mm-hmm. the making of Alien, and it's funny because I was probably one of the only people in the room that hadn't seen Alien, mm. but uh, watching the documentary on the making of it and all the themes and just how much, I mean, half of the film was about that one particular scene where the alien comes out of the person's chest and just how impactful that was in science fiction. So all of that was very fascinating. And so I do need to see that film now. There's actually, there's a new documentary. I haven't watched it yet, but it's about the making of Deep Space Nine. So you should check oh, that out. Maybe okay. that'll make you want to yeah. watch Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, open me up to it more. Yeah, yeah, I'll check that out. So Patricia, when did you start thinking about being a filmmaker? Like, how did that come about? Oh, I've always been really interested in documentary film, um, but it felt like something very um, impractical. Like, I didn't understand how people make a living off of documentary filmmaking, so I didn't really take it too seriously, uh, even though it was an interest of mine. So I would, I so my undergrad was in psychology, and then I did a master's of journalism. That seemed at least a bit more practical. You can get a job as a journalist. Um, but it was a, a similar skill set, and I did take classes in documentary in journalism school. So documentary is something I would just participate in as a hobby, helping someone out who was working on a documentary, being an associate producer on a project here and there. It would just always be an extra. Um, but I eventually found my way to to still focus on it. So um, I guess it still won me over. Mm-hmm. And this this Jordan Peterson movie, this is your first documentary, right? So this is a pretty exciting project. Your first mm-hmm. It's my out. first feature. Yeah, it's my first feature documentary. So yes, definitely the first uh, project on this scale that I've worked on. And so how did this movie come about? Mm-hmm. So I've known about Jordan Peterson's work for quite a long time back when I was an undergrad studying psychology. I think it was probably 2002 or 2003 when I discovered his book, Maps of Meaning, although I was studying at a different university, not at U of T, outside of Toronto. 
And I found the book really fascinating, especially because I was studying psychology. I was studying a lot of philosophy classes and in that really existential space of asking all the big questions. And his work was the perfect thing to land on when you're in that space, just trying to understand yourself and understand the world and your purpose in it. So I continued to follow his work. And I had this idea at the back of my mind for quite a while to make a film about him. I thought that there was something really important there to discover, and I didn't quite understand why. And in particular, one of the things that drew me in to want to understand the ideas, but also the human behind the ideas, was his introduction to his book, Maps of Meaning. Because it was clear that it was a really personal problem that he was trying to discover. It had huge implications for the rest of society, but he had these nightmares uh, as a, a teenager about the end of the world. Um, it was something that really affected him deeply. Uh, and so that really, that I found that really interesting and I was curious about it. So I finally approached him in spring 2015 about making a documentary and this was a year and a half before he released the Professor Against Political Correctness videos, which is really what kind of launched him into the public eye. Um, so the film that I was working on for that first year and a half was very, very different, as I had no idea these videos were coming, or of course that any of this controversy was going to take place. And the film I was working on was following his friendship, Jordan's friendship, with an Indigenous carver who lives on the west coast of Canada. His name is Charles Joseph, and he's from the Kwakwakwak Nation. And both Charles and Jordan put a strong emphasis on dreams. Jordan is very influenced by Jungian psychology, as is visible with the way he talks about archetypes a lot. Um, so he dream interpretation is a big part of what he does. And Charles Joseph has very vivid dreams, and he dreams about what he's going to carve and is visited by his great-grandparents in his dreams. So the film is tentatively called Mechala, which in Kwakwala, Charles's language, means to dream. So that's a big part of what the story revolves around. And it follows their friendship and how Charles's family is actually adopting Jordan into their family. And, and that's because of the level that their friendship has come to over the last 15 years. And, um, I was so for a year and a half, this is what I was following and filming. And then Jordan released those videos and then everything changed. It was, um, a big surprise and it was difficult to make sense of. And so I realized at that point, probably two to three weeks in that I needed to kind of shift gears and have a new focus for the film and put what I was doing on pause, though I do intend on going back and finishing that other film, but it was too much to try to tackle all of those subjects in one film. Right. And I was looking back through Jordan Peterson's YouTube archive and in the early years, I'm just going to read the name of one of these videos. It's called Dragons, mm -hmm. Divine Parents, Heroes and Adversaries, A Complete Cosmology of Being. <laughs> it's all like things like that. I mean, I didn't see really any politics at all um, yes. for, for years. Like did, in those before all the controversy, did you even uh, was he a controversial figure at all? And had you ever talked to him about politics at all? Or was it just more focused mm -hmm. all on the, the Jungian psychology and symbolism and stuff like that? By far, it was focused on Jungian psychology, the psychology of meaning. Um, even, even the way that he talked about religion was different. It was unclear whether he believed in God or how, where he stood on religion, if he followed any particular religion. And so, and politics, certainly. Yeah, I, I didn't really, if he talked about politics, it was in a, 
historical, psychological way in, in psychology classes, but not to the extent that he talks about it now. Um, I mean, Maz and I had had a couple of conversations with him about political correctness. Like I remember, you know, once talking about, oh, should the sports team change their logo kind of thing. But uh, certainly we were not aware of the extent to which he was thinking about uh, these issues. Mm. And so, so Masier, how did you get involved with the film? Was that just a, a foregone conclusion that you would help out? Or was that a decision that the two of you made at some point? Yeah, so when Patricia started the project, uh, we were dating at that time. And uh, my background is in uh, multimedia production, specifically motion graphics, um, a bit of CGI, um, editing, shooting, and all that. So I was there helping out with some of the early shoots. And um, my kind of experience with Jordan is kind of a bit of an inverse of most people, because he's so famous now, is that I kind of... um I kind of experienced him first as the, just the person. Um, he lived in our neighborhood in Toronto. I hadn't really watched his videos or, or listened to or gone to his lectures like Patricia had um, back then in 2015 and earlier. So I met him as uh, I met him and his family, especially his wife, as uh, people that lived uh, down the street. And, um, from, you know, researching and, and kind of shooting, um, as Patricia would interview him, I kind of got a sense of what, what's in his head. And, and, um, it's kind of like a, a more, a more interesting, more mystic version of, uh, something like, a uh, Joseph Campbell. Um, and I always liked Joseph Campbell. Um, but Jordan kind of took it one step deeper. Um, so my experience with his, with his work and his philosophy and the, the canon of his work, came after kind of getting to know him personally. Um, you know, like we would, we would sit around and drink, you know, Quebecois beer and, uh, talk about tarot cards and, uh, dreams. And, you know, we talk about, you know, day to day stuff too. Like at that time I started a new job and I was having troubles at my job. Uh, and Jordan would be very inquisitive and attentive and, try to be very helpful with advice. Um, and that speaks to his clinical psychology, you know, background and work. Um, so that was kind of my experience with Jordan. And then the rest of it, kind of the rest of its kind of history where um, watching him get more and more popular and every week there was a new scandal and we're trying our best to shoot everything and then interview the people that were associated with the debates and the other side and the fans and the journalists and the people and the YouTubers and across the whole spectrum to kind of get a sense of what's happening here. So we could, we could put together a good film. So that was kind of my experience with Jordan and then the film, the rise of Jordan Peterson. Right. And so how did you feel about all the controversy? I mean, did it seem like an important, um, opportunity that you should be covering or did you have misgivings or did you ever think about abandoning the film or, or anything like that just what was your emotional response to to all that controversy mm -hmm. it was it was confusing at first for sure and um i would say it was an uncomfortable topic uh if i wasn't already in that position i wouldn't have been chasing the story that was about trans human rights pronouns and free speech um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have been pursuing that topic had I not known about Jordan's ideas, how deeply they went and, 
and um, you know all of that I had been doing for the previous year and a half. So, um, and also politically, Maz and I both come from a left of center place. So a lot of our friends and colleagues are also in that space in the arts world. And so it made it an uncomfortable situation in our social space as well. Talking about what we were working on, things were so tense, especially in that first year um, in Toronto. And when I was reaching out to people to try to get them in, um, to be interviewed for the film, it was very difficult to earn people's trust. And I tried to be honest about the fact that I was just, I was trying to really understand uh, what was going on. And, um, and I did want to give a, a fair shot to understanding it from different perspectives. I wasn't going to just, you know, come at it from Jordan's perspective and um, everyone else is a villain. That was something that was always really important to me. And, you know, there are a lot of people who just learn about Jordan through his book and the Bible lectures and things that came later. So there's there's some people who aren't even interested in hearing anything about the sort of genesis of how he came into the world as a public figure with criticizing that law. And they aren't necessarily even interested in hearing the issues around non-binary pronouns. But being there the whole time and witnessing all of this unfold, it was a really critical part to how um, he was uh, sprung into the public eye. So uh, we made sure to include that in, in the story to, to show how this all unfolded with proper context. And I understand you've had issues getting the film in theaters or some theaters have uh, declined to screen it. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So what's happened a, a bit with this tour is that, um, We've had a hard time getting the film into um, getting a mainstream run at a traditional theatrical run in Toronto. We had one that was confirmed, all set to go, and then some staff members or one staff member, we don't know exactly, um, felt uncomfortable with the film and didn't want the company to pursue it. So the company ended up kind of I guess they they wanted to evade a HR crisis, I suppose. Um, so they pulled the run. So that really affected our margins. Um, and then it happened again, but in a slightly different way. Uh, we had our New York premiere at a uh, music venue, a small music venue in Brooklyn called Shapeshifter Lab. Um, we did a one show there. It went great. Great conversation. No sketchy. I don't know, trans, like transphobic, like alt-right. Like it was just, it was just everyday people that are really into philosophy and had uh, thoughtful uh, questions for us at the Q&A. Uh, so that was the uh, premiere in New York. And then we had a second show because that one sold out that was planned for weeks. Um, and then uh, the night before the show at 11 p.m., we get an email from the owner saying that staff felt deeply offended by the content of the film and weren't going to show up to work. Um, and so they canceled that on us and we had to refund everybody and we didn't have enough time to find another option. So that was pretty disappointing. Um, especially since we had sent the movie to the venue, uh, like in August. So they had a chance to see the film. They never did. Um, and we, we didn't get a chance to speak with the staff and to kind of really specifically understand what, what happened there. Because I think that if they were to talk with us and see kind of where we stand on things, I mean, there's a difference between um, us, the film, Jordan Peterson himself, and the people that would come to an event. Um, 
and all of it was quite positive. So we were quite, quite shocked that that happened. Um, other places like one place in Houston, um, didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of controversies. And they, when they knew the subject of the film, they, they bowed out and didn't want to host us. Um, this has kind of happened several times. Um, and this is why we've gone with a more fan driven approach. So in the United States, we've, partnered with Gather, and it's a cinema-on-demand platform where individual people can host the screening, and if a certain amount of tickets are sold, then the screening happens at a commercial cinema, and then they get to turn it into a bit of a social event. So it's not just a screening, but they can have like a post-film discussion at the cinema in their city. Um, so that's kind of the way we've kind of tried to work around this. And we've, we've have our own kind of indie bookings. And since we've had these cancellations and all this controversy around the film, it's kind of bittersweet because on one hand, it's a bit annoying because people are talking around about the controversy of the of surrounding the distribution of the film and not the film itself. So that's always a bit frustrating. But on the other hand, we've gotten a lot of press and we've also gotten support from people like two places in New York asked us to come back and uh, to do a, a tour there so we've been getting support amidst all the controversy it's been a it's been a crazy ride with a lot of highs and lows right now we're in san diego we have a screening tonight um and we've we've done vancouver toronto portland portland we got a threat we got a threat from antifa um portland's of course very left-leaning and uh you know it was this kind of quite a violent threat we got on Facebook in the end, nobody like they didn't even show up. Uh, so we had undercover cops there, you know, it was a full crowd, but in the end, nothing came of it in terms of those threats. So, um, so things have been overall quite positive and we're looking forward to our next leg of the tour, which is in Texas. We have several cities there and then next month we'll go back to New York and, uh, kind of finish what we started uh, over in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn. Now, in the world of documentary film, how common is it that something like this would happen, that a theater would, you know, agree to screen a movie and then um, say that the staff was uncomfortable so they weren't going to do it? Is that something that happens from time to time, or is this really very unusual? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, with controversial films, I guess something like this is more uh, likely to happen, but from from what we understand like this isn't a very common thing to happen it's enough that it's making the news and we're working with a booking manager who uh we we hired months ago to try to plan our theatrical tour and even before these cancellations happened um he when he was going and in, in trying to book with cinemas you know mainstream and art house cinemas who he's very well connected with he said that, you know, the answer no is, is expected in this business. So that's normal. But the, the kinds of no's we were getting were not the typical no's. And some places were more upfront about it, let's say, and, and would say something like, well, we think this film is fair. We find it interesting, but we don't think it's ethical for us to give a platform to Jordan Peterson. You know, there were some that at least we respected the fact that they were straight up about their answer. Other places gave us kind of some strange answers like nuanced films don't do well in theaters. And I, I get the idea that people want to pay money to see their heroes in theaters, but the responses that we've been getting, even when we're in a room full of Jordan Peterson fans, 
they have really responded positively to the critical parts of Jordan in the film and to the very nuanced nature of the film. So I guess I'm finding it hard to believe that that's true, that it's a market-driven decision to say that nuance doesn't sell. I just think, you know, a couple of months ago, I interviewed Penny Lane, who did a documentary about the Satanic Temple. And I asked her, you know, given the controversial nature of the film, did you have any issues with distribution or anything? And she said, no, no, not really. Hmm. And it's just striking oh, to me that Jordan Peterson is apparently more controversial than Satan, you know. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Satan in the flesh. So I guess it's. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> well, so, well, so, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I. I don't know a great deal about Jordan Peterson. You know, I'd, I'd watched a couple of videos with him over the years. Um, and what sort of made me curious to talk about this, or one thing was that for research for a previous episode that I did, I came across this story where there's this um, tabletop RPG designer. And he had just, I guess one of the things he would do is he would meet celebrities and have his picture taken with them, holding up his RPG book as, as a sort of marketing thing and post it on social media and so on. And so he, mm-hmm. he met Jordan Peterson and had his picture taken with Jordan Peterson. And then his collaborators all refused to work with him anymore. And a lot of people just oh, shunned wow. him and, and everything. And, um, and, and not knowing, as I said, a great deal about Jordan Peterson, I was like, is he really that objectionable that just having your picture taken with him, uh, it requires this sort of a response or like just what is going on. And it, it just seems so like there's something weird there that he's this like maybe the most popular, as I understand it, public intellectual in decades. Um, mm-hmm. Could he really, you know, and, and, but, and yet he's that objectionable that you can't even have your picture taken with him. So could, is there any way to make sense of that seeming contradiction or. One of the, themes that we focus on a lot in the film is this idea of how he's such a polarizing figure. I mean, you say Jordan Peterson, it divides a room. Um, and uh, actually, Maz loves talking about the poster artwork that we did, which really um, revolves around this idea. So maybe I'll, I'll let him talk about that. Yeah. So the poster, the poster has got like a thousand stories in it. So the poster, essentially, you have Jordan uh, in the in the center, stained glass behind him. Um, at the top, you have the lobster, which is a big theme that he keeps <laughs> talking about. And then on the left, you have Antifa pointing at him, condemning him while masked. You have a person with a megaphone. You have people on the left quite angry with what he's saying. And then there's a, a gargoyle there. And then on both sides of him, there's the uh, dragon eating its own tail. So that's the chaotic nature that we're in. Then on the right side, you have people that are uh, praising him, seeing him as a messiah. You have, if you look very closely there, you have a young fan who is wearing a mask of Jordan, and he kind of cowers behind the mask. So that kind of has to do with, uh, you know, the Lost Boys. Kind of, they found a father figure in this era of fatherlessness, um, and they want to be like him, but they hide their own identity because they're still forming that, uh, trying to be him. And then under that, you have a kind of a sinister looking guy with a vote button on his chest. And that's kind of like the, kind of like the right wing, um, political activist who wants to use this situation to advance his causes and just sees, hmm, how can, what can I get out of this? So it's all of these people, the YouTubers, the, the protesters, the anchor people, CNN, Fox News, um, left wing, right wing, kind of that build the persona of this guy. And 
um, it speaks to the polarization and how they view him so differently. And but everybody is talking about him, and they create this kind of caricature, almost cartoonish, of the guy. And on the left side, you, you have the left side of his face a bit red, and then the right side a bit blue. And it speaks to kind of like this internet meme that I quite like, uh, getting purple-pilled. And purple-pilled would be kind of like the radical centralist who, you know, puts policy over party and thinks about case-by-case -case situations of like, okay, well, I'm a little bit conservative on this. I'm a little bit liberal on that. And if you mix red and blue together, you get purple. So that's kind of what we're speaking to there. But fundamentally, what we're exploring in the doc is, is kind of like the duality of his of the character that has been created by all the people that speak about him, society at large, and how I think when you when you got somebody that's so different from everything else, like somebody like Jordan, people, most people try to um, make him what they want him to be for themselves and what they want him to be for their own causes or their own dispositions and their own identity or lived experience. So I think that uh, looking at the poster speaks a lot to the phenomenon that has happened with this guy. And one other thing I'll actually add to that is in our trailer, our film trailer, towards the end, there's this little section where I captured this really impromptu moment uh, when I was setting up an interview with Jordan. I was having some camera trouble, I remember, and so it was like taking a little bit longer. And then once things were finally working, he looked at the camera and he said, Oh, are, is it ready? Are we, are we ready? Well, maybe I can do this. And then he looks at the camera and he says, this is what I actually look like. And then he leans down. He's on the third floor of his home where he has a lot of Charles's masks and totem poles and artwork. And he pulls up this mask. It's green and it has devil horns on it. And he puts it over his face and he says, well, and this is what people who don't like me think I look like. And then he puts it down and I asked him, so which one is real? And he said, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I would say that they're both real. And he, he looks into the camera with that piercing, intense look that he's got. And I thought that this moment was so perfect and so fascinating uh, to include in the trailer because it really speaks to this duality. And there's so many layers to it. Um, one of the things that Jordan talks about is this idea of being a monster and that you can't actually be a good person unless you're also a monster, unless you have a spine and you know how to stand up to people and you're not so agreeable that you'll become part of some other person's scheme without even realizing it, but just because you want to be agreeable and pleasing. Um, and then also that you have to know your dark side. Um, you have to meet it and understand it so it doesn't kind of overtake you unexpectedly. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, we play with masks, we play with themes like that in the film to really, um, capture on a deeper level these ideas, um, while also making it a human story. Well, right. And that scene with the mask appears near the end of the movie. And I thought the, 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 the last couple minutes of the movie were so interesting. They almost reminded me in a weird way of, um, the usual suspects where it's sort of a bit of a montage and a bit of slow motion and music is a little bit eerie. And it has this real mood of like something big is going to happen next, but we don't know which way it's going to go or what's going to happen. Could you talk about like what, what note did you want to end the film on? Well, one of the interesting things about making the film was that so much was continuing to happen while we were making it. And it was hard to know, well, where does this story end? And 
even though, you know, we sort of had a deadline of ending the film, the, the story hasn't really quite ended yet. And even the fact that right now Jordan is out of the public eye dealing with these health issues, for those of you that have seen the video put out by his daughter, Michaela, she explains what's happening in the family there. Um, it, it was, it was almost, um, kind of a, an existential question for us of, wow, what does it mean that we've been working on this for four years and here we are putting out the film and Jordan and his family can't really be part of the release of that? Isn't that so interesting? Because when you make a film about someone, of course, you want to see how they react to it and, and how their, the reality, their reality has been reflected back to them. But I think the ending actually speaks to the fact that Jordan is finally taking some time now to step back and reflect and process. And it's really unfortunate that it's health issues that have forced him to step back. But I think he's needed to, to do this and take this time for, for a long time. And so I think the ending of the film speaks to the fact that he hasn't really processed what's happened and how how much his life has changed i mean it's been crazy it's been moving full speed ahead for for three years and um you know who is he now and where will he go from here i think a lot of those questions are still open it's a question that we're being asked a lot at our uh during our q a's at our screenings actually so i think the the ending creates a, a space for all of those possibilities what did you make? One of the moments in the film that really struck me was you're interviewing Bernard Schiff, who had been one of Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson's friends and had become a detractor. And he relates this sort of odd phone call where he says that Jordan Peterson told him that Jordan Peterson's wife had had some sort of prophetic dream that the world was about to end and Jordan Peterson was the only one who could save us or something like that. What, what did you, what was kind of going through your head listening to that, to him say mm -hmm. that? Having already known about um, the vivid dreams that Tammy has and hearing Jordan's dream interpretations, and especially because the, the film I had been focusing on for the year and a half before Jordan released those videos, I wasn't terribly surprised to hear something like that coming uh, out of the Peterson family. I think that um, Jordan does put dreams and, uh, and even visions um, in a, in a place of value and in, in a place where it, it tells you something about what you're up to um, and um, a way of understanding your own unconscious. So it didn't surprise me to hear that. Mm -hmm. So then another reason I really wanted to talk about this movie that particularly interested me is that, you know, there are a lot of young men these days who kind of live at home and play video games. And, and I have a fair amount of sympathy with that. I mean, I feel like I that could be me given slightly different circumstances and, and sort of feeling very um, like they don't have much of a purpose. And mm -hmm. that Jordan Peterson is speaking to them and saying there, there's this whole world of story and myth that can give you purpose in life. And mm -hmm. I think that that's, that sounds to me like something, you know, that sounds great to me. I mean, you know, I think it's too bad that he's polarizing in these other ways, but I feel like more people should be doing that. But um, could you just talk about that? Like, do you meet these these young men who play a lot of video games and like, what do they, like, kind of what's your impression of them and, and, and why they um, are uh, gravitate to Jordan Peterson? Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting from my perspective first that, 
the way a lot of people have been introduced to Jordan Peterson is through this idea of like, oh, he's the guy that's speaking to the young men. Because when I first met Jordan Peterson and when I would, you know, go to his psychology classes at U of T, psychology classes tend to actually be more female than male. And he's always had this kind of life changing effect for students because of the nature of the kinds of topics he would talk about in his classes. So I always knew he had that effect on people and I didn't see it with necessarily any gender bias at all because of uh, how I was introduced to it. So it's been so interesting to see that phenomenon um, happening now. And so how much is it about the nature of where things are at in society? How much of it is because of the fact that he he really um, skyrocketed to po- in his popularity over YouTube and YouTube the, is more male than female. There's all these interesting ways to look at this, but this is a topic that's been coming up on our tour a lot. And uh, one of the conversations that we've had is about how what it means to be a man is something that does need to be constructed. And it's such a confusing time right now with regards to gender and and masculinity, to know what healthy masculinity looks like. Like a lot of men, I think, are being told to kind of step out of the way and make space for women. So where does that leave you? And what is your purpose? And Jordan is giving people a strong purpose and saying, take responsibility. And uh, there's a lot of value that you can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, Massey, are you were saying in an email to me that you thought there were a lot of interesting overlaps between Jordan Peterson's ideas and science fiction? Is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I'd say that uh, I think the connection would be, I mean, Jordan's uh, interest in mythology and story. Um, and I was thinking about it this morning and uh, a show that I know really well is Next Generation. And then I think about, um, well, a few things. I think about, I think about back in 1997 when Fight Club came out. And Fight Club, I mean, it's not fantasy, but it has those uh, fictional elements into it. And I think about that one line that I'll never forget, and I uh, struck a chord with me back then. Uh, It said, um, we're a generation raised by women. You know, it spoke to fatherlessness. And then then I thought about um, Next Generation, and I thought about Wesley. And I thought about how Wesley... You know, didn't have a dad. His dad passed away, I think, when he was quite young. And um, Picard, Picard always had a bit of a kind of a romantic thing, I think, with Crusher, Wesley's mom. And Picard was always a bit harsh on Wesley. And it was, Wesley was interesting because it was, uh, he was this teenager with a uniform that had kind of like these rainbow bits on it in the first seasons. And he was this young guy, but he's on the bridge. So he was like this avatar for a lot of the kind of people that would watch Next Generation, somebody like me, where we could be like, well, I could be Wesley, I could be on the bridge. And then we looked to somebody like Picard to kind of be that masculine kind of um, father figure that some of us may not have had, or we didn't have a connection to, or maybe felt they didn't understand us, or, you know, we didn't understand them. So kind of Picard acted as that kind of like, you know, straighten up Wesley get your stuff together, um, kind of hard-nosed kind of guy. That was always kind of Picard's uh, uh, kind of uh, personality. And as, I think it has something to do with Jordan, too. I mean, Jordan, th- these young guys, and we see them all the time. Like, we've been on tour uh, when we were filming some stuff backstage. And some of these guys come, and they, they are in tears when they meet Jordan. And um, some of them, yeah, they don't they don't have fathers or... 
they, they don't feel they get, they got the structure that they needed from them. So they, they, they kind of, um, they kind of go on YouTube and, and yeah, I agree with you. Like instead of some more tabloidy, uh, kind of like, I'll teach you about this. Just watch, watch one YouTube video. You don't have, you have to, you don't have to go to college. It's like, instead of that, they watch Jordan and feel a sense of, um, kind of structure. And especially with 12 rules for life, I'm really happy that book came out when it did because it made our job, uh, much more interesting because, uh, the, the film, the, the book was uh, nonpartisan. It was practical advice and it was received very well by the mainstream. It sold more than 3 million copies around the world translated into a lot of languages. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like the surrogate father of a lot of lost boys uh, out there, iGen millennials um, that are kind of internet addicted, and uh, Jordan kind of provides that content to help kind of structure them, and I think that's a really positive thing. Mm -hmm. Does he um, does he read any fantasy or science fiction? Did you ever talk to him about that? I'm sure that he does. Uh, so much of his work is about, you know, he, he has a three, you know, how many, how many classes in it is it is, um, maps of meaning class where he goes through Pinocchio and the Lion King and, you know, stories are so, uh, important in, in his work and breaking things down into the archetypes. So I have seen some videos where he does talk about science fiction and, uh, fantasy and, um, archetypes are, I mean, he, I think he, one of the reasons why he's so popular is because as a storyteller, he's speaking to people on that level. Even in his biblical series, he has atheists interested in hearing his, you know, psychological interpretations of these biblical stories because he, he's, he's speaking about myths and why they're relevant to people's everyday lives today. So it's, I can't even count the number of times people have said to me, wow, Jordan Peterson said the stuff that I knew was true on some level, but I didn't know how to articulate it. That is one of the most common pieces of uh, feedback I get from people on why they were drawn to Jordan Peterson. And I think it has to do with uh, his, his storytelling through archetypes. There is this guy in the movie that you interviewed, Greg Hurwitz, who I think is some sort of a science fiction writer, or I think he's written Batman comics and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, done a thriller, thriller books, and he's done some comic work as well. Yeah. Do you know? Is there anyone else kind of in Jordan Peterson's orbit who's kind of in the sort of comic book science fiction world? Hmm. Good question. Uh, I know he and Greg have been friends for a very long time. Greg used to be one of his students at Harvard. Um, no one else is jumping out at me, but I'm sure that is the case, especially with the number of people Jordan has been meeting over these last few years. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, if, if, if there is, uh, if there is more or m more famous folks, um, you know, what I find actually that like there's these closet Jordan Peterson fans and they, they don't, um, they, they don't want to let people know that, especially the more famous they are, they kind of, uh, keep it kind of behind closed doors because they, they don't want to what to happen with that guy with the photo that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm sure that there are quite famous folks, um, that are, um, that are followers or have maybe even have been in touch with Jordan, but, uh, they, they would probably prefer not to let people know about that. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, 
To what extent do you think that the controversy surrounding Jordan Peterson is people accurately understanding what he believes and objecting to it? And to what extent is it people having an inaccurate uh, understanding of what he believes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the unfortunate parts about this is um, if I knew nothing about Jordan Peterson and when this controversy was coming out and continuing to evolve, if I just read, you know, that New York Times article, Custodian of the Patriarchy, and maybe, I don't know, a Huffington Post article and uh, a Vice, I saw a Vice piece, you know, what would I think about Jordan Peterson? And life is busy. There's a lot going on. I have other things to deal with. Maybe I decide not to dig any deeper into it. I think a lot of us are guilty of that. So that would have painted a very different picture for me of Jordan Peterson. I wouldn't have understood all the complexity that there is and what he's trying to talk about beyond this, you know, three minute edited NBC news piece and whatnot. So it's very easy for people to have uh, superficial impressions of the ideas he's trying to convey or to think that he's this, you know, custodian of the patriarchy. Gosh, like we were so shocked when that article came out. It doesn't even mention Tammy, his wife, in that article once. And I find that very interesting because it's uh, the, the subheading was something like, I don't know, commenting on misbehaving women. And it's like, if you only knew what his relationship was like with his wife, like she's much more disagreeable than him. And he told his dad he wanted to marry her when he was eight years old. If Jordan is a traditionalist, it's in this very kind of old school romantic way. Um, you know, that's the kind of traditional masculinity that he's talking about, not this overpowering patriarchy. Um, so there are so many, um, impressions that people get of Jordan. And uh, in some ways, it's because, you know, you, you can just see any type of media out there and, and just find um, other stories that will continue to reinforce whatever that impression was. We even had this kind of review, kind of uh, opinion piece come out about our film recently, where uh, I think that the author basically just cherry picked three points in the film to affirm what she already believed about Jordan. And it was framed as, oh, new documentary film reveals the truth about Jordan Peterson's rise. And it's like, okay, really, that's that's how you're going to interpret all of this complexity. So sometimes it's by choice. And it's also part of the nature of the media landscape right now. Right. Well, I mean, after I watched the documentary, I spent I spent the last three days watching as many Jordan Peterson interviews and things as I could. And I, I think one one of the dynamics is that he comes off the worst in the ones that have gotten the most that have been distributed the most widely. You know, so like the um, mm -hmm. the testimony um, before the Human Rights Commission or before the, the Senate mm -hmm. or whatever it was, the uh, Kathy Newman interview and the and with the GQ interview, um, you know, he comes across to my mind as just very combative and angry and unreasonable. Um, but then most of the other ones, he comes across as very good humored and interesting and I mean, kind of eccentric, um, but but not particularly, um, you know, objectionable. Um, so I think that, yeah, if you if you only watch the ones that have gotten the most attention, um, you're not getting the complete picture, it seems to me. Yeah, and I, I, to that, I would say that um, th those videos that you mentioned, for kind of like the other side, like the more of a right wing or libertarian bent, like they like that 
they they like how he's being combative with them. They like how like a lot of what Jordan talks about is similar to somebody like Jonathan Haidt. And Jonathan Haidt's an NYU prof who speaks a lot about uh, political correctness and kind of partisanship. And uh, his recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind, kind of speaks to uh, the new generation and how they're having problems with free speech and being able to kind of have viewpoint diversity, especially on campuses. For a lot of these kind of, uh, for some of these right-wing and libertarian types, they don't like how Haidt's too soft. They like how Jordan is combative in these interviews. So then what happens is that it's even more polarized because, because then they associate Jordan with the much more tabloidy, inflammatory, um, unhelpful name calling, uh, kind of cruelty that we kind of find that's becoming more popular with the populist right across North America and, and Europe. And so they associate that directly with Jordan. And that makes it even worse. Um, and so they get even more turned off by, um, Jordan because when they think of him or see him, they think of their most hated, uh, kind of right wing political pundit. Um, and that, that further pushes them away from, you know, re, you know, going out of their way to, to watch a more reasonable, or to consume the canon of Jordan's work that's, you know, quite interesting. I mean, you mentioned that he's sort of, you know, um, he's been dealing with health issues and is reflecting on everything. Do you think that, uh, maybe you, you you answered this already, but do you think that he will come back and take a more conciliatory tone or um, stay away from the really contentious current day politics and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. There's a, a tension running through the film around Jordan's um, belief that, you know, you, you don't want to start defending, when you start criticizing one ideology, it's very easy for you to become that opposite ideology or become possessed by it. And Jordan's explored the idea of going into politics many times throughout his life, including in the last three years, a lot of people were egging him on to run for prime minister in Canada, even. Um, but he's always come to the same conclusion that the psychological realm is really where the most effective changes and the most effective um, motivation for people's lives can be made. So I do think that he believes that and that he'll primarily continue to do that work, but I don't think he'll be able to ever just focus on that anymore and kind of, you know, remove all the political stuff completely. I think it'll always be part of what he does. It's always been part of what his concerns are about in the world. And I think he's been working on trying to find exactly where that balance is. Um, but I, I'm not sure exactly where he'll land once he does come back into the public eye. So this, this next question is going to be a little geeky. So, so bear with me, but one of my favorite <laughs> computer games growing up was the Ultima series. And to create your characters, they ask you, the computer asks you a series of ethical dilemmas that require you to prioritize these eight virtues. So for example, you might get a question where you have to make a choice. What do you think is more important, truth or justice? And I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of I listened to an interview with between Greg Hurwitz and, and Jordan Peterson, and they were saying that kind of the 
you know, sort of the schism on the left right now could could maybe be seen in in terms of like, do you prioritize truth or you, do you prioritize justice? And they were saying that mm-hmm. really you have to prioritize truth. But this is sort of you can see this in sort of um, the reactions to your film. It seems to me like if you think that everything in it is true, which I, I think it is, then people should watch it. And even if they don't like Jordan Peterson and if they don't, you know, like his message or anything, they would want to understand it so that they can um, respond effectively to it and so on. And it's just better to, you know, better to have a more accurate map of reality than than a less accurate one. And any truth, truthful information you can acquire is 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 good. And that's sort of the classical or traditional liberal viewpoint. But then if you prioritize justice over truth, you would say, like you were saying that, well, we don't want to give him a platform and it's not fair that he gets this attention. And even if the documentary is accurate, uh, it's just a bad thing for it to be out in the world or for a bad thing for people to be paying attention to it. And I don't know, do you mm-hmm. have any uh, thoughts on on that sort of, do you, do you think that that's an accurate representation of the social justice left versus traditional liberals is this justice versus truth model? Mm-hmm. Well, as you were saying that, it's been making me think a lot about conversations that I've been having with other documentary colleagues in Canada. Um, we have this sort of uh, online chat um, that a, a lot of us are part of. And uh, a lot of people, I think uh, the dominant idea in the documentary film and arts world right now is about amplifying marginalized voices. That's really... Uh, you know, a huge goal of, of what the, what the arts and what films should be doing. And, uh, I guess my film conflicts with that. If you're going to look at it in a very kind of, um, I don't know, stereotypical boxes way, though, I think it's more complicated than simply looking at it. Well, okay. But Jordan is the white male, therefore the oppressor and the, um, you know, trans people are the oppressed minority. I think this is a much more complex story than just that. Um, but I've been thinking about that question a lot in the framing of this film because I'm so aware and hyper aware of that tension. Um, and, and also it's become apparent in the challenges we face with theatrical distribution. That's, that's a reason why, one of the reasons why we've been getting this pushback because the dominant ethic right now is that you should be pursuing justice in your filmmaking. But at the same time, I'm not interested in pursuing propaganda um, in my filmmaking. So I guess where I've landed in that space is that I think it's most important for me to reflect back to society what I've witnessed in following this story over these last few years. Um, but that tension is still there. And in fact, that's why towards the end of the film, Lane, a young non-binary activist who's in the film, comes back towards the end and we kind of break the fourth wall and even criticize the approach that the film has taken to bring that very um, dilemma into the film because I think it's still so present and, and I wanted that to be present in the film for that reason. Right. And, and Lane is a very impressive speaker i mean in in the movie and i think that bit at the end is is something that will definitely stick with viewers and and make them you know really think about that but i mean i Mm -hmm. i feel like the what's what's powerful about the movie to me is that it is like you said it's about how life is complicated and people are complicated and you know sort of caricatures 
or don't really capture the reality. And you can have plenty of reasons to dislike somebody that are true, and you don't need to reach for ones that aren't really true. Um, and I, I feel like there's we just need a lot more of that in our culture right now of of just acknowledging how messy and complicated people actually are. Mm -hmm. Well, happy to hear that. I hope this film can contribute to that. Totally. Yeah. I just wanted, this is a little, this is a Jordan Peterson quote. It's a little long, but I think it's worth reading um, for, for science fiction fans. So this is, he's talking to Joe Rogan and he says, part of the reason that our society is so damn unstable now, and part of the reason all this weird chaos is emerging, this is a consequence of Nietzsche's observation back in the late 1800s about the death of God. We blew the metaphysical foundations out from underneath our culture, and the whole thing is shaking and twisting, and it's vacillating between the horrors of the extreme right and the horrors of the extreme left. It's been doing that for 140 years. We blew the metaphysical foundations out from underneath our culture, and we need to get them back. Part of the reason that people are so obsessed with things like the Avengers movies and superheroes and Harry Potter and Star Trek and Star Wars is because our collective imagination is trying to regroup at the level of drama and reformulate our fundamental metaphysics. And this is kind of something I, I talk about a lot or think about a lot is because I'm, I'm a lifelong atheist is but but I sort mm. of treat fantasy and science fiction as kind of like my religion in terms of, you know, these are the stories that move me the most and mm. uh, give me a sense of purpose and um, examples to emulate and stuff like that. So I was just curious if either of you have any uh, any reaction to that idea of fantasy and science fiction kind of being a, a replacement religion or a, a sort of a mirror of religion or something. Yeah, I, I think I can relate to that. So my family came to Canada as refugees during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, I was born in Tehran. Um, and um, I think partly because what happened to our country with how far kind of religion was used uh, to promote basically a totalitarian state, uh, religion was never something that I grew up with, and I was always kind of, um, um, kind of had a bad taste in my mouth for it. Um, and yeah, like I, I looked to um, fiction, I suppose. I looked to myth and science fiction to kind of get those stories out. And so I, I and it kind of helped to guide a bit and yeah, role models. And when you were speaking, I immediately thought about uh, Cisco, you know, because out of all the captains, he was the one that was an emissary. He was the one that was a religious figure in that in that storyline in DS9. And um, and yes, I, I think that the best stories in science fiction are the ones that are timeless. Like they're not really about some technology or some screen that pops up in the middle of the air or some gruesome alien it's no it's it's not that and it's it's deeper stories that connect those are the stories that stick with us and are just b movies like alien was a film that essentially had a lot to do with uh, i think um exploring and taking taking the human ego too far like i could go over there i could colonize and i could bring back home the treasure but then what happens is that you can also get polluted and kind of ruin your own um, kind of civilization, and that's kind of I think the canon of what what Alien showed us. So I think what you're speaking to is 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 uh, interesting, and I think that yeah, a lot of science fiction fans tend to be more atheist, and there is a connection there with replacing kind of like what goes on in a mosque or a church or a synagogue or a temple with. Um, the written word with fiction, with TV and film, 
Um, and yeah, there's a role that uh, science fiction has played for me in my life and to kind of helping me kind of orientate myself in the world and then kind of researching Jordan and his, his videos and the, the Jungian archetypes and all of that, that's kind of t- taken it to the next level because he's gone into kind of like the deeper roots of all story and how we like almost on a biological level react to these kind of stories. It's like the same story kind of gets repeated and repeated, but why is that from the Bible to Netflix, you know, they're there and Jordan's done a great job of kind of explaining why I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a pretty good note to end on. So do you, um, do either of you have any, just, um, any other final thoughts you didn't get to mention or just, uh, yeah, just anything else you wanted to mention? Funny how Maz got to sneak in there, ending the uh, podcast on Deep Space Nine again. Mm-hmm. I just noticed that. Um, so I guess uh, we should just mention a few things about the end of the tour. Yeah, so we have our screening in San Diego tonight. We'll be in Texas for San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and College Station. Then we're going to be back in New York in the middle of uh, November. Uh, I think most of your uh, listeners are American, so the pre-order link on iTunes is now, uh, it's still on sale, it's $6.99. It's going to be twice the price when it officially comes out on iTunes on October 29th. Um, there also is the Blu-ray and DVD for sale on pre-order on Amazon, US only, and then internationally it's going to come out on iTunes uh, for the pre-order, I think just in a few days. Uh, including Android, um, and I think that's oh yeah. And if anybody wants to host the screening, they can hit up our website uh, riseofjordanpetersonfilm dot com, and uh, there's instructions there on how to kind of set that up in your region. I mean, we have partners in the states, uh, Germany, Europe, UK, Ireland, Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand. So there's a whole system there for people to host their own screenings. Um, if they want a kind of social experience to go along with watching the film and our social media. So we are holding space films. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. We're also on ThinkSpot, which is Jordan Peterson's uh, new social media site. And they've been kind enough to do our ticketing for us for our tour for free. Um, and we're going to be releasing, uh, we have so much footage that didn't make it into the film. So we're going to be releasing kind of little mini docs and kind of like behind the scenes stuff on our ThinkSpot page for subscribers. Um, and if you use the promo code RISE, you can be on the waiting list as there's about a quarter million people on that waiting list and they're releasing, um, I think like 10,000 every weekend because they're still working out some bugs. It's a completely new system and it's pretty ambitious. So if you use the promo code RISE, you get to be on that waiting list and, uh, be able to access our content through there. Yeah, well, that all sounds great. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting, thought-provoking movie, and I would definitely recommend it. And so we've been speaking with Patricia Marcoccia and Maziar Gattery about their new movie, The Rise of Jordan Peterson. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Patricia Marcoccia and Maziar Gattery for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks.
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.